0: You're listening to Conversations with Coffee. On this episode, my guest is Jeff Duncan, sports writer for The Athletic, based out of New Orleans. He is the former columnist and reporter at the New Orleans Times-Picayune. He was the member of the Times-Picayune's team that won two Pulitzer Prizes for the paper's coverage of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, He's covered the New Orleans Saints longer than any journalist in the nation And Jeff, I did not know that. So, oh my gosh, author of two books focused on the Saints and a forthcoming book coming out that I definitely want to get into. He's also one of the members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee. Jeff, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Claudia. It's uh, great to be on and um, great to hear your voice.
0: Great to talk to you too. You know, just by way of background, Jeff and I worked together when I worked in New Orleans as a reporter, and he was covering the Saints uh, at the time, and I was a reporter for the Fox affiliate there. And we just come to find out, oh my gosh, we're from the same hometown, which gives you like instant cred. You know, you know that this person is is going to be completely okay, right?
1: yeah that was great. I think the first time we met was we were in San Francisco at our Saints Road game, if I remember correctly and uh yeah it's been uh, it's been a long winding journey since then.
0: Well, Jeff, I just want to get into a lot of um what this year has been like for you. The reason that I wanted to kind of jump into this podcast is because. In the last couple of months, talking to successful people I admire, whether it's CEOs or journalists or writers, people that I know, I've just been in awe of listening and talking to them about how they survived during this time, how creative people switch lanes put their energies into different things, and just survive. And and I've found often with all of their stories, it's not pretty, it's it's messy, it's real, it's survival. And you came to mind a couple weeks ago, following you on Twitter, and I saw you put out something about your book. You're like, hey, pre-order my book. It's coming out October 13th. And I thought, oh, that's like typical Jeff. During pandemic, (laughs) he decides to write a book, or maybe it wasn't during pandemic. But that is so you where you always have so many irons in the fire and you're always doing so many different things. Talk to me about like, what has it been like this year to cover an NFL team in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of of calls for social justice? Uh, what has it been like this year? And then and then talk a little bit about what it was like to be in a spectatorless Mercedes Benz Superdome for the first game.
1: Well, it's definitely been different. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I didn't think we'd ever see a day where we covered a game in the Superdome, that massive facility. It's one of the biggest venues in all of sports uh, without any fans in it. It was definitely surreal, and that's an overused term, but I think it certainly applied in that case. But getting to your point about the pandemic and and my my, my basically my work life, you know, Claudia, if you think about it, it's – a good time to write a book in the middle of a pandemic because if you've written one before, you know you spent a lot of time in isolation. Uh, you and your book idea uh, huddled over a, a desk trying to write. Uh, so it, it, if there was ever a time to, to dive into a book project, it, it, it certainly was this past year. Now, uh, full disclosure, I had the book project already on board before the coronavirus outbreak, uh, but for me writing the book, uh, this is my third book I've done, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time basically alone in my home office writing. So once once the pandemic, uh, you know, hit America in March, I was kind of already in that world. I, that was with the late stages of the book project, the manuscript was due right around the time of the early outbreak in March. So i had been spending the, the previous two to three months basically writing uh, feverishly, cranking out, I think it was an 80,000-word project. Uh, I've actually took some time off and went over to 30A, that area of uh, the Gulf Coast of Florida, rented a house to kind of sequester myself to really uh, crank out the final eight chapters of the book. So I was kind of already in that world. And once uh, we went into the transition of of working from home and uh, you know obviously quarantining uh, here in New Orleans, I was already accustomed to that kind of work environment. And because I work at an outlet like The Athletic, which is uh, you know we're online, we're an online sports writing platform, the home office is out in the Bay Area in San Francisco, but we have six journalists here in New Orleans. We don't have a bricks and mortar office to go into anyway. And you've been a part of newsrooms your whole career. Uh, I miss having a newsroom and being able to go in and, uh, you know, socialize, uh, interact with other journalists. We don't have that at The Athletic. So basically nothing really changed for me in this pandemic uh, world that we're in right now, except for the ability to get face to face and report with your sources to go out and cover live sporting events, obviously all that has changed dramatically. But as far as my how I work, uh, really it's been the same for about the past two years since I joined The Athletic.
0: And, and take me through just covering the game this past weekend.
1: Well, that was definitely uh, interesting. I, I knew it was going to be different. I kind of had a little bit of a... Um, I guess preview of it because we'd been covering saints training camp out at their uh, practice facility in suburban Metairie for the past uh, three or four weeks. And the protocols that we had to, um, that were administered uh, because of the pandemic kind of gave me a preview into the world we were going to get into at the superdome. We were tested daily uh, before we even went to practice, Claudia we had to get tested for three straight days. You had to have three straight negative tests uh, to be allowed into practice. Uh, we were wearing monitors, uh, you know, basically contact tracing monitors that uh, uh, told the NFL and would register. Every time we were within six feet of another person, these monitors would start uh, blinking their lights, they had little LED lights in them. And if we stayed within six feet of that same person for a certain period of time, I think it was five minutes straight, it would actually start beeping. So this basically prevented us from, uh, you know, forced us to social distance, if, if you will, during practice. So there was a lot of uh, heavy restrictions on us during practice that kind of let me see what it was going to be like during the game on Sunday. I have to say that the game was surreal once, once it started Uh, We had, obviously, I had passed some health inspections before I got into the Superdome that morning. Uh, The elevator, for instance, was limited capacity, so we had to take escalators and stairs up to the, if you've been to the Superdome, it's the very top of the building. Uh, It was quite a climb to get up there because they don't want too many people in the elevator uh, because of social distancing protocols. And then once you were in the press box, you had to sit every other seat. There was no sitting next to your colleague. We were all spaced out. All of that was was fairly normal, though, and livable. The thing that was so weird was just covering a game with no fans in that huge cavernous stadium. It felt like a practice, a, a scrimmage. It didn't feel like an NFL game. Uh, they had the decibel levels restricted across the NFL at 75 decibels. If you've been in the Superdome, often those decibel meters will register well over 100, sometimes 110, 115 decibels. At 75, when they would, say, crank out the music, stand up and get crunk is one of the anthems that the Saints play after they score a touchdown and gets that dome rocking. Uh, They would play that at the game on Sunday, and it sounded like, uh, you know, you had your volume on your radio turned down to about two. It just did not sound normal. You could actually hear pregame the pyrotechnics as they were uh, the Saints were running out on the field they they still had the pyrotechnics on you could hear the sound of the the, the pyrotechnics going off you could actually hear the sound of them raising the the net behind the goalpost when they were kicking extra points and field goals you could hear it being raised up it was just so eerie to hear all these sounds you could hear the ball being kicked uh all those things of course you can't hear during a regular game with the crowd noise so it was definitely different. uh, And I think it's going to be a while till I get used to that. Hopefully we get the fans back in the Superdome in October. It sounds like the mayor is going to allow fans to come back for the Saints uh, fifth game of the season. So this weekend they're in Las Vegas. There'll be no fans at at the road game there. They come back and play on Monday Night Football, another game in the Superdome. There will be no fans at that. And then they go to Detroit and Detroit is not allowing fans up in Michigan right now. So the Saints' first four games, they will not play in front of any fans. Uh, it'll be week five before we get to see something close to a regular uh, NFL game.
0: Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, your third book titled um, Peyton and Breeze. I love that you're focusing on their bromance, Jeff. I absolutely <laughs> I love that. But uh, also talk to me about having Jeff Gleason write the forward for the book, how did that come about? And I mean, I mean, he is just an amazing, an amazing human being, a uh, former NFL player, safety for the Saints, received a congressional gold medal. You know, my son did a paper on him this this past spring, you know, and watching everything when he received the congressional gold medal. I'm always in tears whenever I I watch Steve Gleason. I hear his words. How did that come about to have him be a part of your book?
1: Well, I've known Steve since he played um, for the New Orleans Saints. We kind of arrived in New Orleans about the same time. Steve uh, joined the Saints in 2000. I moved to New Orleans in late 1999, and his career dovetailed with my career covering the Saints as a beat writer. So we go way back. He was one of the more – I've said this before, Claudia. Steve Gleason is one of the most interesting people I've ever met, regardless of his current fate and and his – basically becoming the global face of ALS, an inspiring leader, of course, to so many people across the world. But he was interesting long before that. Uh, He's easily the most fascinating NFL player I've ever covered. This is a guy that would sit in the locker room. And if you've ever been in an NFL locker room, I mean, it is kind of a wild scene sometimes, especially back in those days. Uh, They'd have jam boxes going, playing music, rap music going. And I'd look over in the corner and Steve would be sitting on the floor reading a novel amid this cacophony of noise uh, with his hair up in a in a man bun. you know he was he was just a free spirit. He traveled the world with his brother. they would surf in Chile and i I get these stories from him about his adventure travels. Uh, and I just found him to be a fascinating guy. He's always very smart, had an interesting viewpoint on life and met a New Orleans girl, Michelle, and married her. and you know this, Claudia, once you marry a New Orleans girl, you're not going to get away for very long. They they ended up putting down roots here. So we became friends after his playing career ended. And um, it just seemed like a natural person to write the forward to this book because he was part of the Saints organization before Sean Payton and Drew Brees arrived and after they arrived. And so he had a really unique perspective on how things changed once Sean and Drew got on board here and and brought uh, that remarkable success that they brought not only to the playing field, but I would argue as much off the field, how the organization is now viewed, the culture of the organization, the perception of the organization has changed dramatically. And I think it's one of the great stories in all of sports. It's very difficult to change something that big uh, almost overnight the way Sean Payton and Drew Brees did. And the book, uh, was, the idea was basically born from my agent. I have to give my agent the, the grad credit. Uh, he suggested it. I was kind of lukewarm at first to it, but the more I thought about it, uh, Drew Brees and Sean Payton each wrote books, as a lot of people know, after they won the Super Bowl here in 2009, that magical season where the Saints won their first Super Bowl. Uh, each of them did a book project after that. They were both New York Times bestsellers, really popular books. But it's been a long time since then, and there's been a lot that's happened here, uh, not only on the playing field but off of it in New Orleans. And it's, as it appeared to me that Drew's career was winding down, it seemed like a good time to tackle a project like this. Uh, he's become the all-time passing leader in, in NFL history, of course, broken all these records. And I really wanted to, to document not only what makes Drew Brees tick, what makes Sean Payton tick, but also, like, as you said, the bromance, this unique partnership they've had and what makes that work over a 15 year period, how, how they evolved and stayed ahead of the competition, which I, I find fascinating. So I think people that read the book, you'll get something out of it, even if you're not a football fan, because really the, the principles that work for Breeze and Peyton and the Saints in staying ahead of the competition, in succeeding Uh, Really, those those principles would apply to business or just everyday life. The reason those guys are successful is no secret sauce to it. They just work extremely hard. They have extraordinary mental stamina, their ability to process information and to grind away over and over, you know, day after day, week after week, year after year. uh, The only word I can use is extraordinary, And, and it's what separates them from their teammates and their peers even you know even other players which obviously to to reach the nfl level you have to be a gifted athlete and a a truly special uh player or coach uh they separate themselves from those other uh, peers with how hard they work and their passion for the game it's never really fallen off and so i get kind of into how the sausage is made during a given week and i think people will find that fascinating just how much work goes into preparing for a single NFL game. And I think in the end, and I really believe this will be Drew Brees' last year, but I think in the end, what the reason he'll end up retiring is not because of the physical toll this game takes, and it takes a great physical toll on these athletes, but I think it's more the mental grind of the preparation. And once you see what Drew Brees puts into a game plan each week, how many hours he spends watching film, uh, you know, breaking down tendencies. Uh, I just think it's, it's after 20 years in the game, uh, he's ready to move on to a new chapter at some point and spend more time with his growing family. Uh, but I think it's a, a pretty remarkable testament to the man that he's been able to do this for 20 years at such a high level. So hopefully people will get some uh, use out of this book and some uh, find it interesting beyond just the football aspects, because I really believe it's a, it's as much about business and life as anything else.
0: I've pre-ordered the book and we're going to certainly have some information in the show notes about how people can pre-order on Amazon and other places as well. But like you said, I feel like it's a good recipe for success. And and I'm always fascinated with how people come together. And, And as you mentioned, the Saints, this is going to be a legacy for a lifetime. People are always going to look back upon those key moments that you're talking about to say, and that's how they turned it around. And that's how they established that organization to be the success that it is. I want to switch to another passion of yours, which is horse racing. Uh, what a weird Kentucky Derby in September! It was great to see the race. I love watching the Kentucky Derby. I love horse racing, but I think it was odd for a lot of us watching in the middle of September. There's no spectators in the in the stands for safety reasons, which we were all um, all on board with. But looking ahead to the Preakness, which is now going to be in October, do you have any early picks?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. Um, Obviously, I thought Tis the Law was going to win the Kentucky Derby like everybody else. Me too. He didn't win. Yeah, I mean, that that shocked me a little bit. Uh, But who who would be shocked that Bob Baffert won the Kentucky Derby, right? I mean, a Bob Baffert horse. Uh, So I do think it makes for an interesting Preakness. Uh, There's a horse that I'm interested to see if he runs in the Preakness that might be a good long shot or, or fairly medium shot, if you will, Claudia. A name Happy Saver. He's kind of an up-and-coming three-year-old for Todd Pletcher. Obviously, a great trainer, Hall of Fame trainer himself. Uh, I'm looking for some new horse on the scene because we've had this long, uh, unprecedented horse racing three-year-old season. I think there's some, uh, you know, younger horses that can emerge that could upset the apple cart in the Preakness. And Happy Saver is a horse. He's only run three times, but he's won all three of his races. He's won at three different tracks. And uh, he's, he's already in Maryland, I think, preparing for the Preakness. And if he's entered in the Preakness, uh, I'm going to probably put a few dollars on him to try and upset uh, if authentic goes there or tis the law, which I'm not sure is even going to happen at this point uh, because of the you know, the unprecedented situation we have right now where the, the final leg of the Triple Crown is going to be right on top of the Breeders' Cup, and I think some some of the trainers and the connections for these horses might have their eyes on the the bigger purse that's going to be available at the Breeders' Cup, which I believe this year is in is at Keeneland, if I'm not mistaken. So it's it's just such an unusual situation, Claudia, with uh, how the how the thing played out. But I do have to give credit to Churchill Downs and and the rest of horse racing for kind of carrying the torch early on. If you remember when when the pandemic hit. All the sports basically was shut down, and horse racing kind of kept going in a lot of venues, especially Oaklawn Park down in Arkansas, some of the other tracks. Uh, they kept it going early on. I remember covering the Louisiana Derby this year at Fairgrounds. That was like the first weekend that the pandemic forced restrictions here in New Orleans. And a lot of people thought the Louisiana Derby was going to get canceled, and they kept it uh, going. And that was the first major sporting event I covered during this weird world. So horse racing kind of endured. It's one of the few sports that can kind of operate uh, because of its unique nature. It can operate in this um, unprecedented situation we've got.
0: Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, just sharing your insights uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, talking about your book. I think it's going to be just really, really great for you. And We'll make sure that we have uh, some information about pre-orders or where to get that book in the show notes for sure. But next time I'm in New Orleans, we're all going to have our big reunion at the fairgrounds and we're all going to the fairgrounds. Deal?
1: Deal. I'm all over that. I look forward to that. And obviously, Claudia, thanks for having me on. And uh, thanks for ordering the book too. I really appreciate that.